when we start interceding, when we start speaking on behalf of someone else in intercession, then we only have permission to speak the will of the Father. Please remember that when we pray, we're not making a suggestion to God. God only asks us to pray in accordance to his will. Prayer is not a random asking. We're going to Mark chapter 5. This is another step in the chronology of Jesus' life. I'm actually going to read this same passage out of each of the Gospels. So if you want to hold your place in Mark chapter 5, I'm going to actually begin in Matthew chapter 9. Each one of these tell the same story. Each one says something just a little bit different. We know this is the woman uh, with the issue of blood, the woman who touched the hem of Jesus' garment. So in Matthew chapter 9, beginning with verse 20, And behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood twelve years came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, If I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. But Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith has made thee whole, and the woman was made whole from that very hour. Now Mark uh, chapter 5, beginning with verse 25. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse. When she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, If I may but touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And he looked around about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her daughter, Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. And now Luke chapter 8, beginning with verse 43. And a woman having an issue of blood twelve years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any, came behind him and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her issue of blood staunched, and Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, the multitude throng thee and press thee, and sayest thou who touched me? And Jesus said, Somebody hath touched me, for I perceive that virtue has gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she was not hid, she came trembling, and falling down before him, she declared unto him before all the people what cause she had touched him, and how she was healed immediately. And he said unto her, Daughter, be of good comfort, thy faith hath made thee whole, go in peace. Lord, we come before you reading these three passages, each one telling the same story of this woman of great faith, this woman whose confidence whose trust was built on something very small, but with great assurance that if she could just get to you, if she could just touch you, there would be a tremendous difference in her life. I pray, Lord, that that would still resonate within our lives today, knowing that all we can do in prayer 
Lord, is to bring someone before you that we can release by your authority in prayer healing over someone's life. I pray, Lord, that we would perceive the reality of what is happening here and recognizing the true impact that this story, this witness has even for us today. So we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. When he says in the scriptures, you, you pray wrong, you pray incorrectly, you pray selfishly, the answer to that is, there is, is designed to be in the fact that I have to hear from God first and that I'm simply praying what he gives me to pray. If I pray that way, if I pray according to the will of the Father, what my prayer becomes is an act of obedience and by that act of obedience, he will release the supernatural reality for which we're asking. That's prayer. It's not taught that way, but that's prayer. Certainly it doesn't hurt. It's even right and correct to have a conversation with God about you, about what's going on in your life. Still encourage you to pray according to the will of the Father. That's why he speaks. That's why he is, gives us what he gives us because we pray what our imagination, we pray what our heart, we pray what our mind gives us. So basically what we're doing is we're praying in the soul. We're praying out of the soulish desires of our life. And what God is saying, what I want you to do in the spirit is to be able to understand me, perceive me, know me in the spirit, and then begin to pray in agreement with what I'm showing you. That releases authority. That's not just any prayer. That's a prayer of intercession. Okay, here we go. Verse 24 says, and Jesus went with him. And much people followed him and thronged him. So we know in this, if we, when we read it in Luke, in verse 42, it says, it gives it even stronger. Are they choked him or are they actually stifled him? So they were, this was a tight group. They were pressing on Jesus. They were trying to get close. And you can just imagine this very slow move as he's trying to get through this crowd. And it says that this woman came to him who had an issue of blood. And she had had it for 12 years. And it says that she had suffered many things in verse 26. She had suffered many things at the hands of physicians, had spent all that she had, had suffered many things, they had tried everything that they knew, and it says, but she was none better and had actually grown worse. Verse 26 tragically speaks of what happens today in the Christian world. This is strangely typical. How does this speak of, of the typical reality within the Christian church today? Well, here's the simple picture. She did everything that her mind knew to do. She did everything her heart felt was right, trying to pursue the answer to this tragic problem within her life. It speaks, though, to our complete inability to find full and complete resolution to any problem that we face when we try to do it within our soul. So I'm going to take just a second, since I brought the flip chart in here. All of our teaching is based on the reality that God made us to be trichotomous beings. We're made in his image. He is a God of three parts. It shouldn't surprise us that we're people of three parts. You go to 1 Thessalonians 5.23, it says, the salvation of the spirit and the soul and the body. So we know they're, they're distinct, 
Pastors can't mix these two. The soul is not the spirit. The spirit is not the soul. And any teaching that blurs that line is going to create more confusion than clarity. You have to know the difference. The body is everything physical. The soul is everything mental and emotional. And the spirit, everything spiritual and supernatural. Don't let the word supernatural bother you because Jesus himself, Paul, teaches that someone who's functioning in these two is called the natural man. The natural man cannot perceive the things of God because the things of God are perceived spiritually, supernaturally. So that all that's telling you is that there's a reality, a place, a, a citizenship to which we belong. What makes us unique in the world is not that we behave better or that we don't go places where we're not supposed to go and we don't say words we're not supposed to say and we don't hang out you know, with, in doing things that we're not supposed to do. That is not the distinction that's created in Christianity, even though that's what's held out, that this is the distinction of the Christian world. We're different because we belong to a supernatural kingdom. That's the uniqueness of the Christian life. Not that we just behave better down here. That's why the world loves God and hates Christians is because what they've watched for so many years is Christians who claim to be better in how they act from here down, and that's just not what they see. The reality of the church was we're designed to be a church of a supernatural reality. We're members of a supernatural kingdom. When we became Christians, we moved from the flesh into the spirit. We were given the Holy Spirit as the evidence of that reality. And I can show you that scripture after scripture, that the gift when we were saved was the gift of the Holy Spirit. John, First John, in those statements of love within chapter 3 and 4, it's just said over and over that the assurance that God gave us was he gave us the Holy Spirit. The majority of what happens in solving problems today when someone comes to us as believers, when someone even comes to us as ministers, the first thing that we do is we engage our mind, we engage our emotions, and we start giving advice. That has become the Christian world's pattern. Or we simply say, I'm not qualified to give you advice, and we send it to someone professional, someone who has a degree. I do not speak against people who have degrees. I send them. There are situations I face where I know that that professional understanding is necessary. This is not bashing those folks. It is a reality for the Christian church that we see ourselves so ill-prepared to help somebody with the issues and, and their circumstances or situations because we try to process it. You know, our body senses, our soul thinks and feels that the daily activity of our spirit is to watch and listen. That's the reality of who we are. What this woman had done, most of us have done, or that we know people who do it all the time, is that she went and exhausted everything she had and was absolutely none better. And I want to tell you, I can name people who tried to solve your problem for years and years and years and years and never got anywhere. We talk about this. I teach the lessons from the book of Exodus. What does this look like when you, every morning you step onto this treadmill and you run against your problems on and on and on and on every day, exhausting yourself every day trying to solve a problem now sometimes for five years 10 years 15 years 20 years still have the same problem and every day you step off 
exactly where you got on having accomplished nothing except you're tired. Well, I want to tell you today, there's a manufacturer of treadmills. His name is Satan. And he doesn't care whether he gets you on one that looks like success. He doesn't care if it's success or miserable failure. As long as you run on the treadmill, you'll never take this step into the spirit. When Dale Cain was here as pastor, there were some serious changes that occurred. I wasn't going to church here at the time. I was doing other things, and I wasn't going to church here. But I had several members of First Baptist come to me and say, these are the things going on. And I would tell them, please don't be shocked. Don't be surprised that the numbers are fading away, that people are going to other churches. Please don't be shocked by it. Because what God was busy doing, and he did it very well, was he moved this church from an activity-based church to a spirit-based church. And I want to tell you that is not an easy transition because activity looks like success. But I want to tell you it is a treadmill. And we wonder why we've spent so much money doing so much around the world and seem to see so little difference. Even at home with churches and programs and ministries and outreaches, it's like, why don't we see a very different reality? It's because most of this stuff creates activity that was born out of our mind and out of our emotions and had no spiritual basis to it whatsoever. Well, this woman had exhausted. She had spent everything. She was tired. She had nothing left, but she was still sick and still broken. I know that there's people who've walked into this church for five years and ten years, and sometimes even longer than that, carrying a problem this past Sunday that started 20 years ago. Unable, so far, to be able to take this step into the Spirit where freedom and the reality of this transformation actually occurs. So how does Satan do this? When we go back to Exodus, we find a group of people that have been slaves for 400 years. They did nothing wrong. They came there with Joseph to the land of Goshen because he saved them from the drought in Canaan. He came there into the plan of God. And now this 400 years later, there was a new Pharaoh and they, they feared the popularity and the rise of the Jews And so they put them into slavery, and so for 400 years they've been making brick. That's all they know. Well, Pharaoh is a great picture here of how Satan creates bondage. How did Pharaoh do it? How does Satan do it? It looks very, very similar. He makes you believe that your situation is hopeless. How did he do that? How did Pharaoh do it? What was the demand of Pharaoh to the midwives when children were born to these families. Kill the boys. What did a boy mean to those families? You kill their boys, they have no future. So Pharaoh knew how to create hopelessness in the middle of bondage. The second thing he did was he says, not only is it hopeless, it can't even get better, it can't be altered. You ever heard this phrase? That's just the way it is. Who do you think the author of that statement is? When you have the, pe- the power and the reality of God, how strange that sounds. And the third, he says, well, it's not really a problem. It's just personal weakness. It's your fault. And I want to tell you, with these three things, he buries generations in bondage. And I want to tell you, he's very good at it. And if we don't have the answer, you're not going to give somebody advice to overcome that. 
You're not going to give them a piece of information. You're not going to be able to hug them and to give them a pat on the back and emotionally get them out of this because the reality is that all that that does is play heavier on emotions, heavier on thoughts, and across the soul creates this roller coaster that we watch millions and millions of people, even Christians, ride every day. The ups and downs, the ups and downs. Because everything below that line is conditional. You change the condition of the circumstance, your emotions change, and your mind changes. I might be happy, you change the condition, I'm sad. I may be on top of the world, you, you, you change one condition or situation, I'm sitting on rock bottom. Everything above the line is unconditional. Love, forgiveness, peace, joy, kindness, grace, mercy, you name it, above this line is unconditional because it's not you, it's Christ in you. It's the Holy Spirit's reality in your life that stabilizes and says there is no condition bigger than the Holy Spirit that lives in me. There is no circumstance. There is no issue bigger than the reality of God who says I have overcome the world. That's the reality of what this woman somewhere somehow had heard that if I can just get to Jesus, all this stuff that's going on down here, Everything I've tried, everything I could think of I've done, everything my heart told me to do I did, and I'm worse instead of better. And she said, but somebody's told me there's somebody out there who's bigger than my circumstance, bigger than my situation. I've told you many times, when people come into my office and they start telling me the most serious things going on in their life, and I start laughing, and it's not out of insensitivity. It's the reality that I see hope rising and I see, I see an opportunity for them to be completely transformed and their life to not reflect a single part of how their life used to be. And if I can't have joy in that expectation, if I'm carrying the sadness they're carrying, something's wrong inside me. Because I'm not looking at their situation down here. I'm looking at their situation from up here and boy, the hope comes quickly. If they're serious about wanting to be better, then I know a serious God who's ready to do it who's ready to to transform them. Verse 27. When she had heard of Jesus, she came. What had she heard? No doubt it was about the marvelous cures that had been told of by people who experienced that maybe, or people who had witnessed it. And I just want to make a point here. Please never underestimate the power of your testimony because you don't have a clue Someone sitting out in front of you, whether it be a small crowd or a large one, has already taken their situation off the board and said, nobody can help me. And you stand up and you describe a situation just like theirs, and you start talking about the difference that God made. And somebody stands and says, I was a meth addict for 20 years, and by the power of God I am transformed. I want to tell you, hope comes back to their story. Don't ever underestimate the power of your testimony, whether it be of great things or small things. I want to tell you, when we hold it back and become stingy with it, not wanting to draw attention to ourselves, but I want to tell you as a Christian, our lives were designed to be examined. If you want to live an unexamined life, then you're in the the wrong business. Because the Christian life was designed to be one so that the world would examine us. You know, it was no strange coincidence that God put the promised land right at the end of the Mediterranean Sea. Why would he put it there? Why is that the promised land? 
because all the peoples of, of the world at that time had to flow through there if they were going. So what would happen when they passed through where the Jews were had the Jews become the people that God had intended? Then they would have gone through Israel and they would have seen what God was like. They would have seen a supernatural people who were moved by a reality that they couldn't understand, had a power that they couldn't grasp, an authority that they'd never seen before. Put them there on that very natural land bridge so that the people of the world would pass through there. I want to tell you, we are designed to be examined. We're not designed to be put in the closet. We're designed to be a light that was put on a hill to shed light to those around us. I want to tell you, there's nothing to be private about the Christian life. If there is, we're probably, probably something that we're, we shouldn't be hiding. So here we again hear the power of what testimony does. Your experience with God, whether that be firsthand or something that you have actually witnessed, will build faith in others. Most testimonies shared today are really lose something because we tell of what happened a long time ago or we tell of what happened to somebody that we read in a book or something that's been passed to us three or four times. They're valuable testimonies, but I want to tell you there's not anything more powerful than an eyewitness to say this has happened to me, this is who I was, I used to be this and now I'm this. I used to be addicted and now I'm free. I used to be broken and now I'm whole. I used to be in this and now I'm not. Every one of us as Christians carried that story. I once was lost and now I'm saved. There's a before and there's an after in the Christian life. And if you're growing as God intends for us to grow in the spirit, in the reality of the spirit, then the testimonies are going to be new. They're going to be fresh. They're going to be ones that we can tell because we were eyewitnesses. Because of something we heard and we're obedient, something that we saw and we went and did. We were standing there watching when somebody's life was transformed. Or we see the evidence as we see in here, and I'm not going to embarrass anybody, but I want to tell you there's evidence of transformed lives sitting right here, and you may not pick out the ones that you would think it would be. Healing and transformation has come to life after life after life. I was broken. I was addicted. I was lost. I was desperate. I was depressed. That's a strange part of my story, to those days in Amico when I went through that depression, to live free of it now, so I can look back now and share it as a testimony, so people will know that I know what they're going through, and I can describe it intimately, personally, because I went through it, but I can also stand and say, you know, since that day that it was over, I can tell them I took the medicine, I took the pills, I did everything that I was told to do, and then God finally, by his wisdom, by his judgment, set me free. I want to tell you, there's a reality to our testimonies. But most testimonies have lost a lot of power and authority because they're not ours and because we weren't there. We're just passing along what somebody else has said happened. How amazing it was when she heard him, it says she came. That's faith. She didn't just hear him. She wasn't just touched. When she heard about Jesus, she came. And in the press, or in the crowd, she touched his garment. There's a great deal in that statement. Things that we've considered and maybe some things that we haven't. According to ceremonial law, if she touched him as a woman defiled, he would become defiled. He would become unclean himself. So I'm not sure if that's the reason she snuck up from behind. I don't know if that's why she came so hesitantly. But my suspicion is that she understood the weight of what she was fixing to do. 
Because I don't believe for a second her faith was a perfect faith. If it is, it was probably the first human that ever has had a perfect faith. Mine never is. Even when I see with clarity and I respond in obedience to what God gives me, there's always this strange thing, what if I'm wrong? And I know there had to be at least some percentage of her thought, what if I'm wrong here? I'm fixing to destroy his life. But I want to tell you, there was a next step to this that we all need to get. Her faith told her something else. I cannot pass my weakness, my brokenness, to someone who is stronger and whole. Again, conceptually within the Christian world, we've lost that. You understand what I'm talking about? There's had to be something saying that if he is who he says he is, I cannot pass my disease to him if he's going to free me of my disease. See, we don't live with that kind of faith. I'm not talking about our faith in God. I'm talking about the, the reality that God has put in us, the reality of the Holy Spirit, and that I stand as the minister. Mike Mother will pass out these pieces of papers. There was about 40 or 50 here on that Sunday night. I said, I'm going to read a story to you. And I'm going to ask you which character in the story you best relate to. So I read the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. So we have in that Lazarus, we have in that Mary and Martha, we have in it the mourners, we have in it Jesus. And I said, okay, as I read this, I want you to put down who you most relate to. And out of those 40 or 50 responses, there was not a single person who said, I relate to Jesus. I'm Jesus in the story. Some were Lazarus, some Marys, most of Marys are Marthas, some the mourners, but everybody related to somebody in that who was broken, hurting, had a need. And isn't it strange, because as Christians, we're supposed to study this and understand it, recognizing that we are Jesus to the people around us. When Jesus was baptized, three things happened. One, he was adopted by his father. Again, this was a very common practice in the day. When his father said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, what he actually did was something that happened in the Greek, Roman, and Jewish culture, that they adopted their own children in the public arena. At this moment, when they saw a characteristic or quality that says, now I'm going to establish my child as a son so that he can transact business, so he can bind, so he can release, so he can sign contracts. All the privileges of a son are transferred to him in this moment. And it was when the father saw obedience. So when did God see obedience? In Jesus that prompted this adoption. What happened when John the Baptist said, wait a minute, I need to be baptized of you. What did Jesus say? No, I need to be baptized so that all things will be fulfilled. So his father says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And all of a sudden, Jesus had the standing now as the son of God the Father. He announced it himself. He had it. The second, he received the authority of the Holy Spirit. How'd that happen? The Spirit descended on him. And as John says, and it remained. What qualified Jesus to minister for the next three and a half years? It wasn't the fact he was smarter. It wasn't the fact that he was a human. It wasn't the fact that he was more emotionally connected to people. He wasn't wiser. He wasn't stronger. He wasn't more brave. He wasn't more courageous. He was 100% human. And if you change that, you change the story completely. 100% human, depending 100% on the Holy Spirit every single day. That's why he drove him into the wilderness. So that Jesus would know the strength of his power. To know the reality of his presence and to acknowledge the reality of his voice. That's what the wilderness was about. The Holy Spirit had to become real to Jesus 
so that he could trust him, know him, hear his voice, and have access to the Father by the work of the Holy Spirit. The third thing that happened was he was given access to heaven. He says all of heaven was opened unto him. Those three things happened to him. So he, he was adopted, he was given authority, and he was given access so that he knew he was ministering under an open heaven so that when he began to release forgiveness into somebody's life or healing into somebody's life, he knew that he was having access to the storehouse of heaven and that there would never be a moment when there wouldn't be enough love or strength or courage or honor or whatever was needed in that moment because he was flowing straight out of heaven through him and touching people's lives. And guess what? This is exactly what happens to us. This is why we taught last year that you can't separate baptism from salvation. If you do, you do it a great disservice. It's not baptism that saves you, but it's baptism that gives you the authority as a son. If you're not baptized, you don't stand in the authority. And we had 58 people baptized, recognizing I was never baptized that way. I was dunked under something that was told me that it was a symbolic, an outward expression of an inward change. No, it's the moment you received authority just as it did with Jesus. And we wonder why the church has no authority. We took the truth away. This is what happened to you. This is what makes you ready to be a minister. This is what qualifies you to be able for someone to come to you, share with you, and for you to release a supernatural reality into their life more than just advice. How strange it would have sounded for Jesus when she came to him and said, you know, wait a minute, somebody touched me. I've got some good advice for you. I'm really in touch with my feelings. Let me just give you some real good advice. What strange story we would have been reading in the New Testament. And what hope would have been lost if advice was all that we had. This amazing healer, she knew, must somehow be above the law. That ceremonial law that said don't touch him, he must be bigger than the law. He must be greater. Because if he weren't, there'd be no point in touching him. Verse 28, for she said within herself, According to Matthew, that phrase is in there. If I may touch but his clothes, I will be whole. That is, if I may but come in contact with this glorious healer at all, remarkable things will happen. Verse 29, and straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up. Here is the reality and the result of obedience stirred by faith. That little faith that she had, she moved in obedience to touch his garment. This one is an odd one for me because there was no appeal made to Jesus and he didn't have an opportunity to say anything in advance to her. She was healed before he turned. He knew that something had left him. So here is this reality of the truth that she stepped across the line. She found somebody that was bigger than her problem. I'll be careful how I say this. It can sound disrespectful. Jesus did not heal her. Go to Acts chapter 2. There's that strange verse that says, These are the miracles that God the Father did by one he found faithful named Jesus. God the Father performed that miracle. Jesus had nothing within himself in his humanity to help her, except that Jesus knew the reality of the Holy Spirit that he had been given, the authority that he had because of it, the fact that he was speaking under the authority of his Father, and he had access to heaven to release into this woman something that she couldn't find anywhere else. The strange part is, it happened before he knew it. I'd love to be like that. How strange it was for Jesus to respond and say, you know, something's happened. Something has seriously happened. It's these miracles that still confuse the New Testament church today. We don't know what to do with these stories. 
So what we've typically done is that at the, at the end of Acts and in other places, well, God doesn't do miracles like this anymore. I tell you, that is just garbage. That is not true. I've read those passages, and you've got to stretch them to even make that possible for that God wouldn't still do miracles today. To, to move in the supernatural today, you have to take away the nature of God. You have to take away the fact that he is God to remove the supernatural. Because when you remove it, all you, you make him natural. How strange that teaching is that we have allowed. But these, these confuse us because it's like something must have changed. So we say it's God. We look at these miracles and since they don't happen today, well, God must have changed. I don't think God has changed at all. You hear these stories of Heidi Baker and you have to completely make her a liar if you don't believe them. But, uh, you know, the story that we, we played in here, that testimony, she's standing there in this, in this line of women bringing these babies to this clinic, and somebody comes and tells her, there's a lady back here that's got a dead baby. Would you mind going talking to her and get her out of line? So she goes back and says, lady, she's going to hold your baby. And she said, very unexpected to her, this wind began to form inside of her and just belched out of her as a breath. And she breathed on that baby, and that baby was alive in a second. What do you do with that story? What file do you put it in? Why there? Because they don't have anything else. They don't have a 401k to trust. They don't have medical insurance to trust. They don't have money in their pocket to trust. They don't have food in the cabinet to trust. They don't have vehicles to drive them to the hospital. They don't have ambulances that will pick them up. What do they have? She'll tell this in the testimony. She said, unless God's moving as God, we're hopeless here. They don't have anything else. We've got a lot. God comes at the, lit, at the end of our list of everything else that we've tried. It's what the story of this woman is. And I tell you, this is a battle I battle. I mean, I, I'm not pushing this off on anybody else. This is a struggle that we have within the, the Christian world today. I don't believe God has changed. I believe somehow we have. As you all know, I use a, a Bible program. It's, a lot of people do. It's called blueletterbible.org. And this is Luke 137. I'm going to point out some things as best I can. You can go to Luke 137, you can click on tools, and, and this is what it will bring up. But this is that verse in English. You notice it down the left-hand side, right there, yeah. For with God, nothing, and then, then it's a phrase, shall be impossible. That's the way it reads in English. That's not at all the way it reads in Greek. Because in English, what we would believe, with God, nothing is impossible. So if there's a hundred sick people out there, because of that phrase, I ought to be able to go pray for every one of them and every one of them be healed because the possibility and the reality of God says I can. And so we've tried that and we were disappointed because nothing happened. So we adjusted our doctrine against that disappointment saying, well, that can't be true. So we just adjusted our doctrine to deal with the disappointment that we just felt. What does it really say in Greek? It actually says in Greek, for with God in the word nothing there, it's not one word, it's three words. Notice, what is that word? Rhema. R-H-E-M-A. What is rhema? It's the spoken word of God. The logos, the written word of God, rhema, the spoken word of God. I've shared with you the scripture before. Faith comes by hearing. That is a gerund, present tense, continuing. We can hear right now and we'll hear in the future. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You go to that verse, what is the word word? It is rhema. 
Faith comes because we can hear the fresh voice of God, the spoken voice of God, and that's where our faith is built. Because God speaks and we can hear him. Notice what this verse really says. is for with God, nothing that God speaks is impossible. He has to speak it before it comes possible. Why would that be necessary? Because that's how the sovereignty of God gets put into the equation. It's how the will of God gets, gets understood. Because if we don't understand that, it's kind of our will to go do what we want to with what God says. And that will never happen because it will only happen by the sovereignty of God. So when you look across the hundred people sitting out there and you hear the voice of God, he says, pray for that one, that one alone. Under that provision, because he's not going to speak it unless he's attached a provision to it. That one's got healing connected with it. But unless we hear, we're going to adjust our doctrine to disappointment and believe that God somehow has changed. That's what we've done. That's the adjustment that we have very sadly made. But I wanted you to see this. That's the Greek. No thing rhema. Not just nothing. Three words. No thing rhema. You can see them. That's how it becomes possible. God has to speak it first. Jesus didn't do things according to what he wanted. He did things because he heard the Father and he was obedient. Because even he had to trust the sovereignty of God, not his own will, not his own humanity. He had to have the Spirit of God. So there, you can see it for yourself. Continuing in verse 30, when Jesus says, And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that virtue, authority, had gone out from him, he was conscious that something had happened. I think this is odd because he didn't do as he had done before, to say, your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk. He didn't say any of that stuff to this woman. He just knew that something had left him. Because he knew something that was dwelling within him had suddenly changed. The reality and the presence of the Holy Spirit, what was in him, was so, was so significant in defining who he was that when something changed like this, he knew that something in him had changed. He knew that something had, had been altered. It came out of his fullness, the fact that he was walking with the Father. In Matthew chapter 28, and I'm just going to read this, you don't have to go there. It says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Jesus knew that he was functioning under all power. He knew that what, when he received the Holy Spirit, he had actually received the reality of the Father and that in, in the Spirit, all power had been given to him and authority. So then he says to us, go ye therefore and teach all nations. Because of that fact, go and teach all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the world. Why is it necessary for him to say, and I'm with you always? Because he has the authority. If he has all the power and the authority and he's with me, guess what I have? All the power and all the authority. He'll never leave me. I'm an able and ready minister all the time. Verse 31. This is one of these, this just too rich. I mean, it is powerful in what it's telling us. The disciples said unto him, when all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, thou seest the multitude thronging thee and sayest, Who touched me? So he knew a certain person touched him. Not just the crowd. He knew that there was a specific person who had touched him. He knew that somebody had touched him with a conscious, voluntary, dependent touch of faith by reaching forth their hand and expressing that in that contact. He knew that somebody around him wasn't bumping up against him casually, but moved with purpose, with precision, with determination, with faith to touch him. If I were to ask you today, which is your pursuit of God? Is it more casual? You bump up against him? 
Or do you pursue him with the fervor of this woman? She was determined. Her faith made it very clear. I can go to one place. I just think that's wonderful that we hear amazing grace ever so often. It's kind of like somebody saying amen. But God just does that just at the right time. I think also what that tells us is that that's exactly what Jesus is seeking out in us. He's seeking out that part that has that kind of pursuit, that kind of relentless determination. If, if you've ever had an opportunity, you know, when they interviewed Missy Edwards on the 700 Club, it's on uh, it's, it's the internet version, it's got a different name. They interview her, and one of the things that happens when you hear her talk, and especially if you know her, she's my niece, but I can't tell you I know her, Except for what I hear her say in her testimony, she just doesn't come around much because she has one focus. She has a heart for God, and it is determined. I mean, she does not waver. And say, well, is that to the detriment of her family? I, I'm not sure. I will tell you, if I stand before God, I want him to know that he was first. That there was nothing that would stop my pursuit. Verse 32, and he looked around about to see her and that had done this thing, not for the purpose of getting onto her or finding the culprit, but because he wanted to draw from her a testimony. Verse 33, but the woman fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, she already knew what had happened to her. She was alarmed, shrinking back, trying to not draw any more attention to herself, but she came before the Lord and she said, this is what has happened. So she came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. I wonder when the last time that God put us on our knees before him because of the amazing things that he's done for us? When was the last time that we found ourselves on our knees because of something that Jesus had just done? I don't believe for a second she had the nerve to stand up and extend her hand and say, very nice to meet you. sure appreciate the fact that you, uh, that you healed me. I guarantee you she was on her face before the Lord. And I wonder what it would take to put us there. I wonder how great God would have to be to us. I wonder how much goodness he'd have to show us to put us on our knees. It should be an everyday thing, but I also know that there's these moments before the Lord that I've experienced in my life of strange healing, of strange moments. And I'm not real proud of the fact that it didn't put me on my knees. I was grateful. I just kind of wonder, with people who have so much as we have, I wonder what it would really take. What kind of blessing would have to actually receive to put us on our knees before God? I can tell you when two years ago or three years ago now when Kate was diagnosed with this mass on her ovary, started the size of a grapefruit, and that's what they told us two weeks later was the size of an elongated football. I guarantee you when the, when the doctor walked out, and, and the doctor, the lady doctor was in tears. I've never seen that before. But she was in tears when she said there is no cancer. I guarantee there was nothing that could hold me up in that moment. I was on my knees before the Lord. That was enough. Kind of strange that it took so much for people who have been so blessed. Verse 34. He said unto her daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. This is one of the most major points of this story. Because Jesus said something very odd. It would be tragedy to really miss this point. Because Jesus at the very end of this, according to Mark, says, Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Simply saying you, to this lady, you've got an option now. 
to walk away from this moment and live whole knowing that this has happened. Or you could, in this moment, continue to live broken and crippled even though the healing has come. And that would have been very easy for her to do because for the last 12 years, all the things she had done, all the patterns of her life, all the limitations that she had could have remained absolutely in place. She could have stayed at home all the time. She could have been nervous about going out anywhere. She could have lived a life strangely still in compromise because of the fact that she had been sick for the past 12 years, even though she's had this encounter with Jesus. How do I know that? Because I watch Christians do it all the time. Saved and powerless. Saved and living as if we'd never been saved. Having received the Holy Spirit and never being able to express that in any kind of authority. I watch it happen every day. So do you. I lived it for a long time. Jesus is saying, go live as if this had never occurred. Go and never again adjust your life to the sickness that you had for 12 years. Why not? Because Jesus didn't say, I've come so that you could adjust to the world. I didn't come to give you good coping skills so that you can make it through the trouble that you have. He says, I came to overcome the world. Again, the Christian world has done our best to help people cope and to help them adjust so that they can make it from week to week and from year to year. And the best that we've offered them is coping skills under this heading of overcoming. And we call it success. And Jesus says, that's not success. I came to overcome. I came so that after you've had an encounter with me, you don't have to live an adjusted life another moment because you are truly free. You can look back on that now and share it as a testimony and tell of what God has done. And look at it as a memory of how things used to be. This woman could stand and say, yeah, for, for 12 years I was sick. But I guarantee she doesn't wake up every morning fearful that this disease is coming back. Or she doesn't hesitate to go out to the market or go out to, to see friends or to go see family because she's afraid of this issue of blood that it might come back. Because she knows in this moment, it says, he says, I want you to go and be whole, be complete. Don't have any adjustment All those coping skills that you put in place to make the last 12 years possible are now completely unnecessary. Go and live free. And I watch the church offer people coping skills and good advice and adjusted lives. And we call it success when when, when we see them get a little stronger, a little better. I want to tell you, there's a whole lot of difference between an adjusted life and a life that's overcome. I came to overcome the world. He's saying to us, live as if we know we're saved. Man, it's strange to hear whining Christians, victim Christians. And I know there's still broken hearts within the Christian world. But the reality of God says, I I may be broken in this moment, but I, I know somebody. I know him because he saved me. I know what it took for God to save me. I know how broken I was. I know the life that I had. I know where I would be without him. Live as if we're saved. Believe it and live it. Live as if you know God loves you. That'd be a strange adventure. Does God love us? Absolutely, we'd say, but we don't live like it. Who is God that loves us? The creator of the universe says he loves me. My father in heaven says he loves me. Does that make any difference? Boy, it should make all the difference. Again, that's what John figured out when he says, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. He figured out that the greatness was not us shouting at the sky saying, God, look how much I love you. Look at all the stuff I'm doing in your name. He says, I know, I can read your heart. He said, but what I'd like you to figure out is somewhere within the human capacity to discover how much I love you. That'll change your life. John got it. That's why we find him at the foot of the cross. That's why we find him in the tomb, because he figured it out. 
The others were still, still trying to get it. They were still trying to say, Jesus, I'll be there, I'll be there. And you don't worry, I'll be there. I'll never deny you. Look how much I love you. And John said, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. I, don't, I, don't, I kind of wonder if he said it out loud to them and how they took it. We ought to live as if we know truly that God is in, in us. That what happened to Jesus has happened to us. That I have access to heaven. That I have the authority of the Holy Spirit and I've been adopted by a father who loves me. What does it mean to have a father that loves you? Adopt, you know, adopted or otherwise. What does it mean? It means everything. It means I'll always belong. I'll never be alone. And I don't care if I'm eating with the pigs, I can turn and run home. Because my father will be waiting because he loves me. We ought to live as if we believe what Jesus said when he said we'll do greater things than he did. And still stumps us a little bit. But he said it. We really ought to live as if we believe that we're designed to be a magnificent church. Filled with splendor. Filled with glory. Filled with life. This ought to be the most alive place you ever walk into. So alive you can't contain it. You know, I showed you the video a few weeks ago of Amanda Vardy that had been, she hadn't been healed of the scars on her face of that disease, ME, whatever all that stands for. But she said, you don't know the healing behind it, but you know, she talked about the fact that she couldn't even raise her hand to her mouth. And she goes to church and suddenly she realizes, oh, my hands are up. She said, I couldn't sit up straight in my wheelchair. She said, I've been sitting up for an hour and a half. And then it shows her in this actual footage after six months, sitting there and they pray for her. She came expecting a miracle because she knew she didn't have anywhere else to go. And it shows her putting her walker now. She's up walking at least. She puts her walker aside and she just starts dancing. I long for the day that this altar is filled with, with dancing people simply because they can't contain themselves because of what God has just done. Came expecting a miracle and he delivered and they just can't contain their arms and feet because they're dancing with joy before the Lord because they don't know what else to do. Man, what a day that'll be. It's coming too. There's no doubt in my mind that day's coming. You just can't contain because we understand that we are designed to be a magnificent church. I'm not talking about Sundown First Baptist. I'm talking about the church that God has established. Magnificent, filled with splendor, filled with glory. I look forward to the day, and I hope I'm here. I hope that's not the day I'm sick or the day I'm on vacation. When John walks in and that chair's, behind, and that chair's gone, I'll dance on that day or pass out. I'm not sure which. Might as well start now. You ask John if he's healed, he'll tell you yes. May not have manifested yet, but the healing's already come. Lord, we just thank you that we can come before you in, in faith, and it's imperfect. But you never ask us to have perfect faith. You just ask us to put our faith in you, and we do. We know who we are without you. We know where we would be if you weren't here. We'd just be church. The spirit of religion would be in control, and we'd just be church. I thank you, Lord, for the hearts of these people who refuse to accept that anymore. No longer to say yes to the spirit of religion, but say yes to the spirit of God. To let you be God in this place. To let you do what only you can do. Thank you for this teaching. Thank you, Lord, that you bring it week after week. Thank you for the fact, Lord, that I don't have to. Because you're the only good teacher. You're the only one who can bring truth. We speak Thank you and glory and praise over you. In Jesus' name, amen.